Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. At Police Care Australia, we know that happy cops make the world a safer place. We understand only too well the threats and pressures cops face every day and the toll it takes. That's why we've established a health and wellbeing hub or a place with resources where former and current police members, families and friends can get help and assistance. It's an online portal where you can get support and counselling with professionals that understand police. Police Care Australia is a joint initiative between the National Police Memorial and the Police Federation of Australia. You can find out more details about Police Care Australia at their website, www.policecareaustralia.org.au. Megan Norris is a former court reporter, investigative journalist and true crime author of some eight books. Her latest book, Look What You Made Me Do, was originally published in 2015 and won the Australian Sisters in Crime 2016 David Award for Best Nonfiction. Her media work has won the Eliminating Violence Against Women Award. And Megan's a known campaigner for women and children escaping family violence. She often writes feature stories giving a voice to survivors of violent crime. Hi Megan and a very warm welcome to The Crime Couch. Thank you very much for having me. Megan, why did you become a court reporter and a journalist? I always wanted to be a journalist, even as a very little girl. I can remember when I was about nine, waiting for my mum and dad to go out, and I would delve under the bottom of his uh, armchair and pull out the British tabloids, the seediest ones, the News of the World, the Sunday People. And I used to read those um, like scandalous crime stories with a small pocket dictionary, looking up words like, decapitated, decomposed, disemboweled. And by the time I was nine, I had a repertoire of very uh, grim phrases like, her headless torso was found in a shallow grave. Courtesy of the news of the world, my mother blamed my nightmares that I had because of these stories on Nancy Drew girl detective books. (laughs) Megan, was it a natural progression for you as a journo and a reporter to start writing true crime books? I think it was a slow evolution. I started off covering courts in the UK and I did that for about 17 years before we emigrated to Australia in 1990. And we came to Melbourne where I set up a court agency covering all the cases that the daily paper didn't have enough journalists on their court team to cover. So I was doing my own thing and I started to get calls from overseas. So I was doing international media, filing copy to US Weekly, National Enquirer, UK Mail on Sunday, those sorts of publications and writing for local media, national media, which led to me then being asked by one of the magazines 
to write stories on the behind the scenes. So instead of covering the court case, which is what I was skilled and trained to do, I was looking at the impact of violent crime on the survivors, the people left behind. So those were the stories magazines and television wanted. So I started to chase those stories. My court work sort of dropped off, although I loved, I still love to cover court, and I still cover court. But I was covering the untold stories of the survivors, which absolutely rip your heart out. And I just thought, people have no idea the journey that those people are on for the rest of their lives. So while people might get 30 years in jail for murdering someone's child, that whole family have got a life sentence. Megan, you've spent a long time of your life, more than 40 years, writing about grieving parents whose children have been taken away due to some very horrific circumstances. What motivates you to write about these things which are are pretty grim? So that people will understand. I think it's more about, for me, generating a real awareness of the agony and the suffering that this causes and whether sentences are adequate. You know, it's sort of, was that sen- did that sentence really fit the crime or didn't it? You know, it's questioning the system. It's also giving people an insight into stories that aren't heard in court. So they are now. When I first came here, victim impact statements were not the norm. And that slowly changed because of people like Noel McNamara with Victims of Crime in Melbourne and Jodie Datson's mum, Cherie. They campaigned for that so that the judge would take into account the suffering in, in sentencing and reaching an appropriate sentence. And that, to me, was really important. So it was those stories that were only being heard in court in a short victim impact statement that I wanted to explore more so that people really understood what violent crime means to, in people's lives. You've had your own very tragic personal circumstances as a young mum nursing a teenager through cancer. I understand your child is now okay, thank goodness. But is that why you understand so clearly the parents in your book, what they're actually going through? Yes, I remember when my oldest son had cancer, he was 14 when he was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. And we spent all our time on the oncology ward. And in those days, 97, there was no cure for leukaemia. It's still an unpredictable illness. But it was very unpredictable then. Sometimes they made it, mostly they didn't in 97. They were perfecting a protocol of treatment that's now international. And, you know, it's most people survived now, but then they didn't. And I remember thinking, feeling very hard done by, and very, like, why me? I did the why me. And I remember sitting on the ward about four in the morning at Monash, watching the sun coming up, thinking, you know, why me? And then I thought about all the parents whose stories I told, who they kiss their children goodbye, they go to school and don't come home, or they go out for the afternoon to a playground and don't come home. And I thought, you know what, if everything doesn't work out for us, I've had this time in hospital, these this two years, I've had this time to love him and be there right up to the last minute and to say goodbye and be there and hold his hand and he's surrounded by love. Those parents don't get that. They never got the chance to say goodbye. A lot of them beat themselves up forever. Congratulations on your latest book, by the way, Look What You Made Me Do. 
Where did that title come from? The title came from the mouth of a of a very serious offender who murdered his little girl. I was looking at violent relationships and how they culminate in the deaths of women originally. Uh, but when you look at the bigger picture, I realised there was a lot of... There, were, there are men who kill their wives on the steps of the family court for leaving. But then there are the men that kill the kids because there's a fate worse than death for a lot of those women. And it's like killing a wife that's left would be too easy. Death's too easy. These are the guys that want to inflict a real suffering. And in order to do that, that wife needs to be alive to suffer. So they target the kids instead. And the kids are not even the real... I think they're the only murders that I've looked at where the, the, the children who are murdered aren't actually the targets at all. The real target is the surviving parent. And the, the offender that kills those children wants the surviving parent to be alive, to suffer for the rest of their lives. And it is a, a fate worse than death for a lot of women. You've mentioned some very disturbing stats, which I didn't know. Tell me about the stats involving family violence. Well, we all know, I think we're all quite aware in Australia that one Australian woman dies every week, either at the hands of an intimate partner or a former spouse. What people don't realise is that one Australian child dies every fortnight at the hands of a parent, a biological parent or a step-parent. And there are different categories of child killing, but the ones I looked at in particular were what we call payback killings, revenge killings. They're commonly known as retaliatory filicide, and that's where the children become collateral damage in crimes that are aimed at the surviving parent. You just explained what retaliatory filicide means. It's the murder of a child under 18. This book that you've written, which is Look What You Made Me Do, features nine mums whose children were murdered at the hands of a spouse or a step-parent. And who do you think is the real target of these crimes? You mentioned it before. The real target of the crimes is definitely the surviving parent. These guys want their wives to suffer forever and to remember it, uh, that they took control. I think that's the thing. They are crimes of power and control. And in many ways, it is, it is the ultimate act of domestic violence that a man can commit against a former partner or partner. It's, it's, a, it's a way of sort of reclaiming control and showing her who's boss, who had the final say. So the title of that book, Look What You Made Me Do, these guys are self-righteous, self-entitled men who view their families as chattels basically it's a proprietorial attitude they see them as an extension of themselves to dispose of as they choose and they choose to kill the kids so you know uh, i think when offenders behave in that way it is inflicting the ultimate act of family violence and one that shows who was boss megan how on earth do these mothers deal and live with the fact that their children were killed to inflict lifelong suffering on them well, it's a million-dollar question, isn't it? I've interviewed so many mothers, and look, there were many mothers that could also have been in the book, but there were too many. I could have, I, I have enough material for a follow-up, which makes me really sad. Um, and that, that was why I was motivated to write the book too, because I wanted people. If I, all these women, every single one, there are nine mothers in this book. Every single one of the women I've ever spoken to raised red flags. They warned the authorities, they warned their lawyers, they, they warned the courts, they warned the police, they, they told everyone who would listen that they felt their children were in danger. 
and nobody heard them. It was as though their concerns were minimised or completely dismissed until it was too late. And I thought by putting these cases, running them chapter at a time, in a single book, that their voices would be too loud to be ignored when told together. And also the signs that were missed are impossible to miss when you read them chapter after chapter. You can actually see a theme going right the way through the book, saying there was an opportunity and no one listened, or there was a red flag and no one saw it, and except the mother. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you about, Megan, because there's nine different cases in your book. But what are the similarities, Megan, in those cases? Well, there are similarities in the relationship the, the, the balance of power that shifts during the relationship. I think in everyone, the, the relationship starts off on an even keel, on an even footing. And these men tend to choose strong, independent women, not weak, easy to manipulate women. I find that really interesting. They're sort of drawn to that strength. These women are strong, independent women when the relationship begins. And it's a slow erosion of confidence through put downs, through bullying, through intimidation, through manipulation, which was massive. So that emotional manipulation was there. Then women have babies and they're at home with babies. So there's a shift of financial power and they're on the back footing there. I saw a slow shift in that. These men are all self-righteous offenders, self-entitled men who feel completely inclined to do whatever they want with their family. And by the way, they're not going to have some court order telling them when they can, can and can't see their kids. So there was that general disregard for the law. When things started to go wrong and separation was happening, in some cases court orders were served, or AVOs, which were completely flouted immediately. One guy broke his order four times on the day it was served. Another broke his intervention order 28 times in the month leading up to when he, the months leading up to the murder of his children and father-in-law. I think one of the fascinating things on reading some parts of your book is there's a widely held perception that these men that commit these crimes are mentally ill. In fact, if I hear that defence once more in court, I'm going to screech because it is something now that is such a go-to for most defence counsel, a lot of defence counsel. Is that accurate? They're not mentally ill. Well, the men in this book were not mentally ill. And even the ones that unraveled or were unraveling, they were not mentally ill. They knew exactly what they were doing and they did it. They knew what they were doing was wrong and they did it anyway. In nearly every case, the, well, in every case in the book, it was planned. Hints had been made or menacing threats had been made. They were sort of veiled things like, you know, if I don't get custody of these children, you can look out. That threat was there, you know. If I can't have them, no one can, that sort of threat. Or my kids, I can't live without my kids, one of them said, Gary Bell, I can't live without my kids and they can't live without me. Well, whose decision was that? So whilst a, a, a couple of them certainly unravelled in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath, and I'm thinking in particular of Arthur Freeman, who threw his little girl Darcy off the Westgate Bridge. In that case... That was a very clear case where they argued before the court, the defence argued, that he was mentally unwell, he was not in his right mind. And the question for the jury became, is he mad or is he just bad? 
And after listening to all the evidence, they decided he was bad. He knew exactly what he was doing. So he drove to the highest point of the Westgate Bridge. He didn't just pull over on the bridge. He drove to the very highest point where he got Darcy out of the car and threw her off the edge. He put his hazard lights on when he pulled over to park. That showed um, orientation. He knew what he was doing. He knew where he was. He might be in danger with the car. He put his hazard lights on. After doing that, he got back in the car and he drove through the busiest rush hour traffic on the first day back at school, which should have been Darcy's first day at school. And he drove through rush hour traffic into the CBD, safely negotiating all the traffic where he handed his children over to staff at one of the court precincts. And he was told by a social worker who saw him then, he was covered, he was drooling, he was blubbering, he was sobbing, he was a mess. And a court worker, not knowing that what had happened, put a hand on his shoulder and said, it'll all be all right. And he said, no, it won't. It will never be all right again. So he knew exactly what he'd just done. He knew what he'd done and he did it. And he'd said before that um, murder, he'd telephoned his former wife from the Westgate Bridge and said, say goodbye to your children you're never going to see them again. And I use the word them, you're never going to see them again, because I don't believe he intended Darcy to be the only victim. He said, say goodbye to them, which implies, doesn't it, that maybe he was considering wiping out the whole family. But having done what he did, I think the shock, because people don't realise it's not just victims of crime that suffer PTSD. Offenders often suffer PTSD from the effects of their own terrible actions. And I think having done what he did, he did go into a state of shock. And that's why nothing happened to the other kids. And he had the presence of mind to hand them over to someone who would care for them, which shows me that he knew what he was doing. And he knew what he was doing was wrong. No, it will never be all right again. Well, he's right, it never was. What sentence was he given, Megan? He was given a, a, a life sentence. I'd have to check that. I, I think he got a life sentence for that, and he's in jail now. Megan, as you've stated in your book, a woman dies at the hands of an intimate partner every week in Australia. Why is this still happening? Well, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? And it still is every week. I think very recently, I live in Queensland now, it was officially said that Queensland is the most dangerous state in Australia to be a woman to live if you're a woman and this case is almost every other day I think uh, two weeks ago there were two cases in a single day in Queensland a young mother and her baby were found uh, were found dead at their home and um, the former partner is now in custody uh, there was another case about a week after that but there's cases every day and I, I look at uh, Cheryl Moody's uh, website every day um, counting dead women and it's it's beyond me why is it happening you know I think it when you look at these cases so I can only speak about the nine cases that I've followed it but these nine are textbook cases of revenge killing that I've plucked from many many more I chose these mostly because the mother's concern wanted to be involved so they trusted me with their story in the hope that lessons would be learned one thing that struck me with it was that a lack of a real lack of training proper training in DV for frontline workers like young police. And you can't blame the police. I think Ian Leavers from the Queensland Police Union or the police union told uh, media after the Hannah Clark case, Hannah Clark's a young mum 
and three little kids who were burned alive in the car on the school run by a vengeful ex. He said then, you know, they had a lack of constables, a lack of frontline police, a lack of training and proper effective DV training amongst frontline police. So you get young constables coming out of the academy and the first thing they're sent to is a domestic violence incident. At 23, what kind of life experience do they have to deal with that? And I think there was a general lack of effective risk assessment too amongst DV workers. In the Hannah Clark case at the inquest, one of the social workers, and Hannah had reported this to police and to social workers from DV, that she was being strangled. It was non-consensual strangulation during sex. Now that we now know, that's a real red flag. I think I think Betty Taylor, who's the head of the Red Rose Tribute um, organisation in Queensland, said the other day in a Facebook post or a social media post that women who are strangled are 800 times more likely to wind up dead in intimate partner violence. And that is a real red flag. Hannah reported that to a policewoman who was trained in DV and she responded appropriately and referred her on straight away. But the DV people that went to see her didn't report that further. No one investigated further. And when the social worker was asked about that by the coroner in the inquest into Hannah Clark's death, she said, well, everyone says that. Every woman we see says that. So nearly every other woman was also reporting manual strangulation. My answer to that is, well, they should be taken seriously every single time, you know, and, and that should be followed through. And she was also, uh, Hannah Clark was also asked, do you think that he might harm you and the kids? And she said, well, he's a man with nothing to lose, yes. And still she wasn't classified as the highest risk. I think one of the other interesting points you make in your book is you claim that police are often reluctant to arrest offenders who've repeatedly breached um, AVOs. Why do you think that? You know, because that's the other thing I'm reflecting on. Family violence is now front and centre for operational police, isn't it? I mean, they do get some additional training. But why do you think police sometimes are reluctant to arrest these offenders? Well, sometimes the women themselves are manipulated into dropping charges by their clever, manipulative ex-partners. They're guilted out into not pursuing action. They're made to feel bad about it or ashamed. These guys are the fathers of their children. So I think sometimes they do a lot of paperwork for no result. In a lot of cases now, the police will take out an intervention order on behalf of a woman who feels unable to, which I think is a great step forward because they can take over that um, that decision. It, it takes the decision away from the woman having to make it, which I think would be very hard. But I, I do think that, you know, you get also get police who will act and will arrest people for breaking an, an AVO, but then the courts don't follow it through. So they end up doing all this work, they cart them off to court, and the courts don't follow it through. I re- when I launched the book recently, I relaunched the updated version of Look What You Made Me Do, because I wanted to do extra chapters to show the potential lethality of um, coercive control. People underestimate that. They think if a woman's got broken ribs and a black eye, she's more at risk. But coercive control, can, which is you know manipulative behaviours, can also be potentially fatal. So I wanted to show that, 
and uh, and I think that when I launched it uh, I had a panel of speakers I thought rather than have me banging on about a book I've written I wanted people to hear from the players themselves so I had um, one of the mums asked ask me can I come and speak about what it's like and her two little children were murdered in 2004 her name's Dione Ferring and she spoke and she look people were in tears but it came from her heart her message was listen to me because I've had to live this life I've lived with this legacy so she told her story about how she was failed by the system and then I had a, a very young dynamic police prosecutor from Queensland Police who works up in the Beanley Logan area which is a real hot spot in, on the Gold Coast and that has got now designated specialist DV police stations so she's a DV prosecutor and she was so outraged at courts letting men back out you know the police will arrest them charge them with breaching an AVO they get sent to jail or they get put in custody and then the courts let them out on bail where they go straight home and murder the wife she was so outraged about that that she wrote this big long submission that she managed to get her boss to drop in the in the chief commissioner's inbox and they changed the bail laws so changes are happening with enough outrage from the people who are in the front line it's really heartening to see that and also since the hannah clark case in queensland and the Robert Edwards case in Sydney, he's the guy that executed his two teenage children with a, a short, close range, with a, a, with a Glock pistol, fired repeatedly into them as they cowered under a desk. As a result of those two cases in New South Wales and in Queensland, the rules have changed so that it's mandatory DV training for all frontline police, which I think is really, really important because in the Robert Edwards case, everybody failed that 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 case really upset me by the short the sheer scope of all the agencies that had failed if just one of them if the firearms registry had checked his name in the system he wouldn't have got a firearms license to train or to buy a firearm if the um, gun clubs had checked they wouldn't have let him in to train because he was dangerous and angry if the police had put his name in the system they would have found out he had a string of avos a history of six failed relationships in which he'd assaulted most of his six previous wives before the, the last family, the seventh wife and children. He killed his youngest children. But they would have found that various older children had got AVOs out against him, that he'd stalked and intimidated nearly every one of them after they left. No one did their jobs. And as a result, those teenagers, two very vulnerable kids, died. Megan, summing up, Apart from all frontline policing, you know, getting mandatory training for domestic and family violence, what else, what top line solutions would you provide for these sorts of crimes? I think immediate incarceration for anyone who breaches an AVO. I really do. Because you look at um, the case of Ingrid Paulson, whose uh, two little children and her father were, were murdered, stabbed to death by her uh, Thai-born husband, her ex-husband, he breached his order 28 times. How many times does he have to breach it to be a risk? He was basically giving the bird to the system, saying, you know, a piece of paper's not going to stop me seeing my kids. The day it was served, he breached it immediately. Now, that to me is a massive red flag because if people don't care about the law, you've got no chance. And and a piece of paper isn't going to stop a guy like that. So I actually think very strict 
immediate response, tough response to um, people who breach AVOs. I spoke with a domestic violence lawyer, Kathleen Simpson, the other day. She's the Queensland DV Lawyer of the Year. And she said exactly the same thing. I said, how do you see this? She said, I wish I had a solution. I don't have one. Uh, But I would say that immediate incarceration of people who breach AVOs because that's got to be a red flag. Well, Megan, it's been an absolute delight sitting with you today on the crime couch. Good luck with your re-edition of your book, Look What You Made Me Do, and we look forward to the next one. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the crime couch. 